do. We really do appreciate them, their work, and, and all the uh, excellence that they put into this. Speaking of that, Booth, um, I don't have a clicker today, so um, if you would help me out by walking us through. Oh, I do. I also don't have a... There it is. Good. <clears throat> This morning we're continuing, as we mentioned earlier, our sermon series, um, same, same Storm, Different Ship. As we're looking at different stories from the Bible that, um, that, that revolve around the idea of events that took place on the ocean, on the sea, on the water. And to that point, let me uh, share with you, uh, first of all, our, uh, our, our, our QR code. Um, of course, I'm sure by now most all of you are aware, but if you're visiting with us, you may not know this. All of our slides, all of our material, everything that you see up here. Uh, sometimes I know people are, are hurriedly taking pictures with their phone or trying to catch notes. You don't need to do that. If you'll just pick up your phone, hold it up, and snap the uh, QR code that's on the screen behind me, you'll have access to everything that we're doing on our slides and can follow through very seamlessly with all of our uh, material this morning. So hopefully that'll be helpful to you. Uh, I know that I was homesick here uh, two weeks ago, and this popped up on my television, and I was able to pop it from there and follow along. So even those of you that are following along at home uh, will have the opportunity to follow with each one of our slides as we move through them today. Same storm, different ship. We're going to be in Acts chapter 27 today. would invite you to go ahead and be opening up to Acts chapter 27. Now, if you are typically one of the people who, who don't normally open your Bibles and follow along thinking, well, Jeff's only going to read a verse or two here, uh, I'm going to be reading a long passage of Scripture as we walk, work our way through this text this morning. So it will be very advantageous for you to have that in front of you and be looking at your own Bible um, as, we, as we move forward. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. <clears throat> William Whiting was a 35-year-old man in the late 1850s. Uh, he was a man that had been to sea many, many times. He was an established traveler. His work took him abroad, uh, across the Atlantic, back and forth across the Channel, and even to the United States and back over the Atlantic Ocean uh, on many occasions. But at age 35, William Whiting experienced a storm that was unlike anything he'd ever experienced in his life. It was a storm that was of epic proportions, and the sailing ship upon which he was riding was almost lost. In fact, thinking back on it, he was convinced that the only way he made it through this storm was that God intervened on his behalf. God saved him from that storm. He was reflecting upon his return back to the United Kingdom at how close he was to death. And how terrible that storm had been. And it reminded him of a passage from Psalm 107. And in Psalm 107, he was reflecting on his experience and these words. Give God thanks, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. He spoke and he stirred up a tempest and lifted high the waves. The, the waves mounted up to the heavens and crashed down to the depths. In their peril, the courage of the men melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They found themselves at their wit's end. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storms to a whisper. The waves of the sea he hushed. And they were glad when it grew calm. 
and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. He was so touched by that storm, he was so touched by that psalm that he wrote a song, a hymn. A hymn that you and I are probably familiar with. It's one that we know very well. Um, I'm not going to sing it today. I'm not going to go through it. But um, it's, it's the U.S. Navy hymn. Eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm hath bound the restless wave. One of the best known hymns across the entire world. Interestingly, not one of the best known hymns in our church. Because I said to Bishop, hey, I'd like to sing this song. And he said, I've never heard this song. And I said, how have you never heard this song? I said, I'll just sing it. And then I said, no, I'm already singing one song today. We're not going to subject the congregation to two in one day. The story of Eternal Father, Strong to Save, took place in the midst of a huge storm in the North Atlantic where a man almost lost his life and was reflecting on the goodness of God in bringing him through deliverance. I wonder, I wonder if the story of Acts 27 wasn't also on William Whiting's mind as he was writing these words. Because the story of Acts 27 is the story of a great deliverance from a terrible storm. And in it, I think we'll find some lessons that we can apply to our life. This morning, I just want to put my cards on the table. Here is the way that I went about planning this lesson. It's an outline that I use many, many times in my own personal study. And it's a lesson outline that I've used in sermons many times with you. And it's just this. What? So what? And now what? A lot of times when I'm studying a piece of text, I'll look at it and I'll ask the question, what? What are the details? Who are the people? What are the places? What are the situations and circumstances? What, what's going on in the story? And I'll spend a lot of time looking at the what. And then I'll ask the question, so what? In terms of the bigger picture, in terms of the bigger storyline, in terms of the narrative, where does this fit in? And how does it help me understand the bigger picture better? And then third... I like to ask the question, now what? Now what? Now that I've studied this text and I understand it better, what does it mean to Jeff Darby? What should it mean to me on a Tuesday afternoon as I'm living my normal life? What should it mean to you? What? So what? And now what? Let's start with what? If you have Acts 27 open, we're going to take a look first of all at the at the opening chapter, I'm sorry, the opening verses. Follow along in my Bible, as, I, as your Bible, as I read here. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of the Adriatium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us couple of things. First of all, Saul here has been arrested. Paul, Saul is, sorry, Paul is on his way to Rome where he's going to stand trial before Caesar. So this is the trip that he's going to be making as he gets his way to Rome. There's a couple of things of interest here. First of all, we're introduced to this man named Aristarchus. Aristarchus is a frequent traveler and friend of Paul, and he accompanies Paul on this trip. There's another friend with him, did you notice? Look at the last word of verse 2. It says us. So from this, we can infer that Luke, the writer of this book, was also on the boat with Paul as they traveled, eventually making their way to Rome. It's interesting that Paul was able to bring friends on a journey. 
because Paul was a prisoner, and prisoners don't normally get a lot of flexibility and freedom to just bring along any friend that they might want to. But what we know is that Paul had befriended Julius, this centurion who was responsible for the guard, responsible for the prisoners. And because of his godly life, because of his good character, because of his love, he had one favor with Julius, and Julius allowed him to bring some friends along on his journey. And I think everybody would agree they were glad he came when the story gets going. Continuing on in our reading, verse 3, And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go with his friends and receive care. When we had put out to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly for many days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salomne. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Haven, near the city of Lycia. A couple of things here that's interesting. One, when Paul stops at the, the city uh, at Sidon, he's given liberty to go on shore. This is a pretty interesting thing. You don't typically just say, hey, you're a prisoner, you're going to be going to Rome, but sure, take an afternoon and go enjoy your company of people you know in this particular city. But because Julius trusted him, we, we can infer that uh, Julius knew he'd come back. There's also an interesting thing there. Do you notice the pronoun is him? It doesn't say he gave us liberty. He said he gave him liberty. I guess he figured Paul would definitely be back as long as he kept his friends in the boat. But that's exactly what it seemed happened. The other thing that's curious to me about this is this Alexandrian ship. They changed boats here. They got in a new ship. And this Alexandrian ship is a really interesting thing. It's a grain freighter. It's, it's a ship that carries grain from Egypt, thus Alexandria, to Italy. And this was a very common thing during this day. In fact, historians tell us that this boat was about 150, 150 feet long, 40 feet wide, and 45 feet deep. A really, really big boat capable of carrying hundreds of people. A very, very big boat, a very sturdy boat, a very strong boat, but not a particularly maneuverable boat. They, uh, they came along to a place, and you can see up here a little bit, uh, where they had traveled to this point. They started out here, and here's Sidon, where he got liberty. From here, he came around to Myra, and this is where he changed on to the sailing ship that we are on, the, the grain ship. And from here, he's going to make his way on to Nidus, as we see. And this is where we pick it back up in our reading. Join me again, we're in verse 9. Now, when much time had been spent, and the sailing was now dangerous because the fast was over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss not only with cargo and ship, but also with lives. Now, what exactly is he meaning here, the fast? Well, there, the fast was a time, a time in the year. In fact, they probably say that this was October 5th in the year 59 A.D. It was a well-known thing by Paul. You've got to remember, by this time, Paul has been back and forth across the Mediterranean many, many times. He's traveled 3,500 miles or more on the sea. He is a very, very well-traveled person who understands when you travel and when you don't. From September 11 till November 11, it was a very questionable time to be on the Mediterranean Sea. After November 11, no one would go out on the water because it was just too, too dangerous. They're right in the middle of this dangerous time. And Paul is warning them, this is not a good idea. Guys, this is not the right season to be sailing. This is not the right time to go. 
at this point, Paul knows a thing or two. You got to remember, this is already, he's already been in three shipwrecks in his lifetime. And when he looks out and says, this is not a good idea, he does so with a lot of personal wisdom. Nonetheless, verse 11. Nonetheless, the centurion was persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship, more so than the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from them, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening to the southwest and the northwest, and they could winter there. So they decide they're going to go on around the edge of the island a little bit, and they're going to find a better spot. There wasn't really anything wrong with wintering in Fairhaven. Fairhaven wasn't a particularly great place. That's kind of a chamber of commerce name. Nobody really liked to be in Fairhaven, but it was safe. It was just boring. The, uh, the Roman guards just didn't want to spend three months in a boring city, and they wanted to go to the bigger city of Phoenix. And so that's where they tried to travel to. Let's look at verse 13 continuing. So the wind, the south wind blew softly, and supposing that they had obtained their desire, they put out to sea and they sailed close by Crete. Not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called a Eurocladon, and when the ship was caught and could not hend into the wind, we had to let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. A lot going on in that reading. Let me just tell you real quick what that says. First of all, the skiff is the lifeboat that bounced along behind the boat. These big boats would carry a small boat, and they would just let it drag. But when they got in the storm, the storm was so bad, they were worried this boat was going to smack up on top, so they had to tie it to the side of the boat. That's what they're talking about. The other thing that we need to understand here is this Euclidon is a common storm that comes through this time of year, i.e., the time you're not supposed to be traveling because of this very kind of problem. So the storm is coming up, and it said, we secured the skiff with difficulty. Again, what a curious pronoun. Luke actually now becomes part of the ship's crew. It's kind of that all hands on deck. It's a crisis. And when crisis comes, everybody suddenly becomes a sailor. Reading on. So they had taken the skiff on board and they used cables to undergird the ship, fearing lest they should run aground on the Sardis sands. They struck sail and were driven and because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. And on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. It's so desperate now that they're throwing everything off the ship they can. They've, they've wrapped ropes underneath the ship. They've tied the ship together as tightly as they can. They know it is absolute desperate time. They're even throwing the tackle. That's the rope. That's the supplies. That's everything they need to, to repair the ship if it ever gets damaged. They are in absolute desperate mode because they know the Sirtis sands are right in front of them. This is a very, very infamous part of the sea where there's reefs and all kinds of different uh, places where ships crash all the time and their only hope is that maybe they can just navigate around it and they can't do that if their ship is overloaded moving on verse 20 neither sun nor stars appeared for many days no small tempest beat down upon us all hope that we would be saved was finally given up it tells us that these were people that were desperate they had no reason to believe they were going to come out of this alive. They were in the same category as William Whiting in 1850. They realized this was a storm we're not getting out of. It's over for us. Moving on to 21. After a long abstinence from food, Paul stood in the midst of them and said, 
<laughs> I love this. He couldn't, he couldn't help himself. A little I told you so. Men, you should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete, and you would not have incurred this disaster and loss. But I urge you to take heart. I urge you to take heart. There will be no loss of life among you. Now, this is an interesting statement for him to make. He's not a sailor. He doesn't have any right to say these kind of things. And how in the world is he going to know? You've got to believe these sailors and these other prisoners and the men on the ship with him are looking at him saying, how in the world could you possibly make a statement like that? And he answers them. 23. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and the God whom I serve. And he said to me, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just like it was told to me. However, we will run aground on a certain island. A couple of things in here that are interesting. You notice it's an angel that comes to him, and it says an angel that belongs to the God that he belongs to. It's an angel of God of whom Paul is of God. And he finds this angelic visitor to be very, very encouraging. And not only is the angel encouraging, but the message is encouraging. The message is you're going to be safe. But not just you, Paul. God says, I'm going to save the whole ship. I'm going to save every single life on that ship. And even though it's going to be crashed, and even though it's going to be a destruction on the ship, you will survive. And everybody who is on there with you, all 276 people are going to be saved through this terrible storm. I would argue that uh, the most important phrase in this particular passage and possibly the most important phrase from Paul in this entire story are these three words. I believe God. Notice he doesn't say, I believe in God. The angels, the angels believe in God. The demons of hell believe in God. Everybody believes in God. That's not what he says. He says, I believe God. God told me that I'm going to make it. And I believe you know, the storm wasn't any less. In fact, the storm was worse. The hunger in their belly wasn't any less. In fact, the hunger was worse. The danger around them wasn't any easier. In fact, it was worse. But what does he say in the midst of it? God says, we're going to survive. And I'm going to choose in the time of hardship to believe in the God that I know to be true. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Picking back up in verse 27, when the 14th night had come and we were driven up and down on the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. They took measurements and they found it to be about 20 fathoms and they'd gone a little further. They took measurements again and found it to be about 15 fathoms and fearing that they were going to run aground on the rocks, we dropped anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. 14 days, 14 days they've been in this storm. 14 days they've been without food. 14 days they've been beaten and driven and blind and have no idea where they are. And suddenly in the midst of this darkness, they hear the breakers in the distance and they know that, this, that the, uh, the land is getting closer, that the, the sea is getting shallower. They know they're going to crash onto something and so they throw anchors off the back, hoping just to slow down the ship so that it doesn't crash. Interesting little side story. This week as I was researching this, there was a story reported by, um, by a Reuters, Reuters um, of an actual expedition that was taken about three years ago, and they believe they've found the actual anchors from Paul's ship. Totally cool. Absolutely amazing. I'll share it with somebody if you're interested. We can talk more about it, but it's a really, really neat story. They dropped anchor. They prayed for daybreak to come. Isn't it interesting 
Everybody becomes a person of prayer in crisis, don't they? Verse 30. As the sailors were seeking escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under the pretense of putting out anchor from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay on the ship, they cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes, and the skiff fell. Let's, let's talk about that for a second. So what happens is the sailors, recognizing there's a, there's a breaker, they're going to hit land, something bad's about to happen, they whisper among themselves, hey guys, you know what the smart thing to do is, let's steal the lifeboat, let's sneak off into the lifeboat, and let's get up out of here and let these jokers crash in this big boat all by themselves. And Paul recognizes what's going on. Paul talks to the centurion. The centurion not only tells him not to do it, cuts the boat away, floats it off so that it can't happen again. At this point, you've got to believe there's a little bit of question about the loyalty of the people on the ship as things are moving forward from this part. Let's bring the story down. 33. As it was, day was about to dawn, Paul implored them to take food and said, Today is the 14th day that you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is your survival. Not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. And they were encouraged, and they also took food themselves. In all, there were 276 persons on the ship. When they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw the wheat into the sea. Isn't it interesting that in the midst of the greatest desperation that they could face, Paul's able to bring them together around a meal, around a prayer, and around an encouragement. Not one hair will be lost on any of your heads. I wish he could say that about me. Verse 39. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay, with a, a, a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if they could. And they let go of the anchors and left them in the sea. Notice that, left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for the shore. But striking a place where the two seas met, they ran the ship aground. The, the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. They didn't know it yet, but they were on a little island called Melita. Today we call it Malta. And actually, a little bay that today, if you were to travel to it, is called St. Paul's Bay. They didn't actually make the bay, they were stuck on the reef outside the bay. And the ship is stuck into the reef, and the storm is so desperate and terrible that it's tearing the back of the boat apart. What's interesting about this is this was evidence of God's provision. Only God could have caused this to happen. They barely made the last place they could possibly make. If the wind had pushed them out past Malta, it would have been more than 200 miles before they got to Tunisia. And there is no way this ship is going to make it another 200 miles. God once again shows his faithfulness and brings them to the place that they can be saved. 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose. And he commanded those who could swim to jump overboard and get to the land and the rest to get on boards and parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. In those days, a Roman guard who was responsible for a prisoner would himself pay the price 
if a prisoner got away. And so these Roman soldiers did not want to be in trouble for losing their prisoners. And we can see that uh, the centurion fought so much of Paul that he risked everybody being lost to make sure that Paul could remain safe. You know, I don't know where you find interesting things in that story, but there's a lot there that I didn't know about, and hopefully there are some things that you didn't know about. In other words, some what that might be interesting. But real quickly, let's look at so what, and let's look at now what, because here's where I think the real meat of the story founds. Many months ago, Paul had made, I'm sorry, God had made a promise to Paul. God had come to Paul and he had said, you know what, in the same way that you've testified before me in Jerusalem, you also are going to testify before me in Rome. You're going to get to Rome, Paul. I'm going to make sure that you get there. And even in the midst of this terrible storm and now this horrible shipwreck, what Paul said in the middle of that storm is what's continuing to be true. I believe God. God said, I'm going to get there. The storm didn't want me to. Everything is, for, is against me. Every force of nature is moving against me. It almost seems as if the very depths of hell are coming together to try to keep me from completing my mission, keep me from completing my journey, and actually trying to even take my life, which incidentally is an aside. I believe that's exactly what was taking place. I believe every force of hell was actively involved in trying to derail him from his mission. And you know what that proves to me? is even the combined force of all that hell has to offer can't overcome the promise of God to Paul. So what? I'll tell you so what. Paul, you're going to make it to Rome. And it doesn't matter what comes between you and between that. I'm going to make sure you get there. And Paul said, I believe. I believe God. But what about me? What about you? What about our now what? What can we take from this story? What is it that you and I are going to take home and on a Tuesday afternoon is going to somehow be meaningful to us? Let me share with you real quickly three things that I think this story illustrates that will be helpful for me, helpful for you. I hope that you never experience a physical shipwreck. I hope that I never experience a physical shipwreck. As poor a, a swimmer as I am, I have no business uh, being anywhere that I can meet a shipwreck. But I hope that you never experience one. But I'll, I'll tell you what I do believe. I believe that you and I will and do experience metaphorical, symbolic shipwreck. The reality is that we live in a world that's fallen, we live in a world that's broken, we live in a world that's filled with, with disease and heartbreak and, and financial ruin and difficulty and challenge and emotional failure and relational dysfunction. We, we live in a world that is filled with shipwreck. You're either in one, you just came out of one, or you're about to be in one. That's just the reality of this life. You and I are going to face hardship. What can we learn from Paul's story to help us navigate better and more faithfully our own shipwreck? First of all, expect difficulty. Expect difficulty. Here's the thing that I find so fascinating is so oftentimes when I find myself in difficult situations, I find myself saying, God, why does this happen to me? And if I stop and think for a moment, I go, I know why this happens to me. Because this is what it means to live in a fallen world. So why am I constantly surprised? Why are we constantly shocked by hardship? Why does every time a difficult situation come upon us, we act like we had no idea it could possibly be coming and had no preparation, no thought for it whatsoever? Brace yourself, friends. Hard times happen. 
let's stop being surprised by it. It's nothing new. This isn't the first generation of people that's faced hardship. It's a reality of our world. So if there's one thing I can understand from this, it's to go ahead and expect hardship to come. So that when I do find myself in difficult moments, I'm not surprised by it. But I can say, I got this. I knew it would be coming. I recognize this is just part of living in a fallen world. Second, experience leadership. If there's a time in life that people most desperately need someone to help show some leadership, show some initiative, show some, some, some God-honoring leadership, it's the times of real crisis. It's the times of great crisis when people are the most desperate for someone to say, I'm following God and here's where God's leading and let's go. Because that's the time that it's the most needed. Rudyard Kipling said it beautifully in the opening lines of his poem, If. If you can keep your head when all about are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. You know, in times of difficulty, what the world around you needs, what your family around you needs, what your community around you needs, what your congregation around you needs, is for you to resolutely look to God and display leadership. Paul was a prisoner, a prisoner in chains. And he became the chief advisor to a centurion, the guide to a ship owner, and the pilot to the steerman. Leadership. Number three. In times of shipwreck, express faith. You know, it's the times of the hardest, darkest night, in the most desperate situations, in the, in the most... Uh, in the most resolutely difficult moments of life, those are the times that our faith shines the most brightly as an example, a beacon, a witness to the world around us. How you and I navigate moments of crisis says more to the world about what we really believe than just about anything else that we say or do in our life. So, shipwreck's going to happen. And when shipwreck does happen, can you lean on God and let others lean on you? You can if you can express a faith in him. A faith that resolutely knows that he will keep his word, he will keep his promise. Paul believed God. He believed his goodness. He believed his grace. He believed his promise. He believed his word. And in moments when he needed something to hold on to, that gave him his stability. Do you believe his goodness? Do you believe his grace? Do you believe his promise? Do you believe his word? Do you have the kind of faith that will hold you firm in the midst of a shipwreck so that all those who look upon you have to wonder and marvel at the confidence you have in the God that you love? Well, that faith, Paul would write in a different letter, is found when we come to know the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the Word of God. And that word of God tells us the story of Jesus Christ and it tells us the story of how he came to pay the price for our sins, an act that we commemorated right here around this table as we talked about what the blood does for us as it cleanses us from our iniquities and our sin. And we become part of God's family added to the Lord's church as we're baptized into the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism, dying to our old self and rising a new creature. And in doing so, Allowing the Holy Spirit to work within us a faith that even in the midst of the darkest, most desperate storms, 
and say resolutely to the clouds, I believe God. My friends, the storms will come. That's not the question. The question is when the storms do come. Do you have the faith that will see you through it? If we can help you anyway in your next step in your walk with Jesus Christ, we hope you know that we stand ready in the back of this auditorium at the end of this service to do just that. Let's sing together as we close.